Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. Twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Deep State Radio. I am your host, David Rothkopf, and I am joined on this episode by, in London, England, Corey Shockey of IISS. In Washington, D.C., <laughs> Mika Oyang of Third Way and uh, Rosa Brooks, who's wearing a sloth sweatshirt and drinking out of... Rosa, before we get into this, prior to the last episode, you said your kids gave you a, a sloth sweatshirt and a sloth mug. And a sloth pillow. And, and what? A sloth pillow? Yes. And this yes. is because, and why did they do this, Rosa? <laughs> well, apparently they think I'm slothful. They think you're, and they think a sloth is your spirit. <laughs> it is my spirit animal. I'm quite sure of that. Uh, we were we were on a family trip to Costa Rica uh, a year or so ago, and we saw we not only saw grown up sloths, we saw baby sloths, and they. Um, well, first of all, they're adorable, as everyone who's ever seen a picture of a baby sloth knows, but. But uh, second of all, they spend all their time kind of lolling around, which is what I aspire to, although I am not always able to achieve that. So I'm now surrounded by by imagery of my deepest aspirations, my sloth cup, my sloth shirt, my sloth pillow. But, and, and I, I worry about the future of, of the Twitter character Rosa Brooks's dog when people start creating Rosa Brooks's sloth. Well, the, I think the dog is a sloth, to be honest, because I've noticed the dog has been quite silent lately. Um, I don't know what's up with the dog, but that makes me think the dog is really a sloth. All right. Let me ask you a question. I want to get into something substantive in a minute, and we'll talk a little bit about Bob Woodward's book and so forth. You're but, thinking but, it's not really important who wrote the op-ed. You're thinking, who is Rosa Brooks' dog, whose identity well, has also never been revealed? I, I always assume <laughs> Rosa Brooks' dog is actually your dog, Rosa. Maybe, maybe so. Yeah, no. Corey has a horse, but her horse has been kind of slothful too. Yeah, and me. The thing is, Mika wasn't on this show when everybody was creating Twitter characters based on spirit animals. Oh, you're right, Mika. What do you want before somebody names it for you? <laughs> I don't know that I have a good spirit animal. I have to think about it. I'll get back to you before the end of the show. Yeah, no, you should definitely think about it. You could also have the bugbear from the last episode if you like. Um, if you, if you wanted, if that, that's the, the spirit animal, but, but let me ask you a really important question. Every once in a while, we sort of go off the track a little and talk about, you know, things that you guys know about from, you know, the work that you do. And Rosa, when you talk about being a sloth, it reminds me that one of the most important parts of writing a book every time I've written a book or long articles is taking a nap sometimes several times in the day that I'm working on it. Get up, have a breakfast, think about working, take a nap, 
have a lunch, think about working another nap. You know, that napping is a really important part of the creative process. Is that true for you as well? Is that what you were doing in Wyoming? <laughs> I, 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 I plead the fifth, David. <laughs> Uh, you know, I've been reading a lot about the fifth, and you're the lawyer, but apparently you can't plead the fifth unless you're willing to acknowledge that you're guilty. <laughs> you know, I don't know who's listening to this podcast, so I, we need to be very careful. It could be my agent, and she'll hunt me down and kill me if she finds out I was taking a nap. Um, okay. So say no more. Well, but okay, Corey, you seem like, you know, hyper energy. Every time I look up, there's Corey with an article in Golf Digest. There's Corey with an article in Crocheting Today. Every time you look, there's an article by Corey. Does sloth play any role at all in your creative process? Yes, absolutely. I'm a big believer in the doctrine of sprinting and coasting in the doing of my work as a general rule, namely I sprint and get done what needs getting done, that I may then loll around, sleep in the sunshine, watch my St. Louis Cardinals play baseball, um, go for a long run. I, I am inherently slothful. I, I appreciate that. And, and what's more, I want you to know, I applaud that. Mika, what about you? What's, what's your, what's your sort of, work sloth mix like? Well, I aspire to be sloth like, but I feel like, and maybe this is more describing of my spirit <laughs> animal. You fail at it. I fail at it mostly because I, you know, working at a think tank, report to the office like a good hamster. And so I'm frequently doing many things and it is questionable how much progress I am making. Interesting. And, um, and 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 do you nap in the office like George and Seinfeld? Do you have like under the desk? No, we have these desks that are go from like regular desks to standing desks. So there is no way to build into them any kind of sleeping cabinets. And all our uh, offices are glass. So there's really oh, no. no, that's terrible. You yeah. need to redesign your office. Yeah, no, that is like a human rights violation. It is a human rights violation. I believe the most important thing to actually working is having an easily available place to nap. Um, and I've always had that in my offices. I've always been fortunate enough. No, I that was my first my first and only furniture purchase at Georgetown Law was a, a sofa for napping. <laughs> no, I, I started out totally in the wrong place. Starting out in Congress, you are constantly running towards or away from some kind of crisis. Well, this is a problem for the United States. And, you know, Mika, it's also a great segue because on you know, Monday night, it's, you know, it's not just the Jewish New Year, um, uh, but I, at midnight on Monday night of this week, Bob Woodward's book Fear came out, uh, which I thought was kind of, you know, fear at midnight, you know, it was kind of an interesting thing. <laughs> um, but, uh, but it seems to me in listening to all of the interviews with Woodward and reading excerpts, because I don't actually have a copy of the book in my hand, um, from the book, that Woodward's point is the main thing to fear is that Trump is the most di disconnected president from the issues around him. That the core issue isn't the chaos in the White House, it's, it's, it's Trump's unfitness. Um, so first of all, let's go around and 
sort of get everybody else's take on that and what is significant about this or anything. Corey, this I, I know this is happening far away from you in London, but presumably you still follow what happens in Washington. <laughs> well, you know, I'm serenely unrepentant as a signatory of both the Bellinger and the uh, Elliot Cohen uh, anti-Trump letters. And I feel like the president has proved us right in every article of complaint that we put forward on those. Uh, the surprise about the Woodward book is more the surprise of the details, not that the president is unfit to be president. I think that was a matter that was, as Jane Austen would say, a fact universally acknowledged quite some time ago. You know, I think there's a possibility that you might morph into Jane Austen if you stay in England long enough. <laughs> I would be extremely lucky. I hope someday I can write with the wit and sparkle she did. Well, there's some people who think Jane Austen's the greatest author in the English language, so that would be good. That would, that would, that would certainly be good. Mika, what are you taking away from this early buzz on this book? So I actually think the most dangerous thing in America is not Trump's manifest unfitness. And like Corey, something I and my organization recognized early on, having run an admit he's unfit campaign through fall of 2016. Um, but it's the people around him, and in particular the congressional Republicans, who keep trying to pretend like he is not, that he is in fact a normal president, and we're getting something anywhere akin to normal functioning out of the U.S. government such that he should continue to stay on as opposed to say to opposed to looking his unfitness in the face and taking the constitutional steps necessary to address it. Interesting. And and I think that's certainly true. Rosa, where do you come out on all this? Uh, on which aspect of all of this, David? Are you well, asking me whether I think Trump is dangerous or not? <laughs> well, you can answer what what you think the greatest danger is, or what you're taking away from this this buzz around this Woodward book. It's actually it, it is sort of a, a hard question, and uh, maybe to be a little metaphysical about it, I think the greatest danger is that. It's very hard for any of us, all of us, any of us, to know when to act and how, right? And this is this is something that you know people have talked a lot about and written a lot about. You know, if you're a civil servant or a political appointee, and you know, when do you know? How do you know when to resign? You know, how do you know? How do you know when to just take papers off Trump's desk? How do you know when to resign? You know, if you are if you are in the military. You know, or if you're Jim Mattis, how do you know when you say, I don't like this, but I do it anyway? And when do you say, as as the Woodward book suggests that Mattis said, we're not going to do that? Um, you know, uh, when do when do you leave? When do you, when, you know, what is what is it appropriate to do? And I and I think, you know, history tells us that people have a tendency to be like the frog, the fabled frog that doesn't realize it's being boiled. Um, although, as we know, the frog actually absolutely realizes it's being boiled, the frog jumps right out of that pot. But people don't jump out of the pot, that people have a tendency, whether they're on the, the potential perpetrator side or the potential victim side, you know, to think, 
oh, well, it's really not that bad yet. Things will probably turn out okay. You know, we, the, the Jews say, oh, those crazy Nazis, let's not leave. Let's not leave yet. Um, things will probably correct themselves. Things won't get too bad. Uh, and meanwhile, the you know ordinary Germans who are horrified by the Nazis, and there were plenty of them, think, well, you know, the next election or the next this, or well, maybe the people who are close to Hitler will speak out and they'll restrain him and so on. And we know, you know, whatever example of history's horrors you want to look at, uh, you know, and, and I think the, you know, the, the Holocaust still sort of wins for sheer horrificness and, and, and scale. But, you know, the many, many sort of smaller scale uh, slides into totalitarianism, fascism, atrocity, ethnic cleansing, et cetera, that have occurred. You know, the lesson of all of them is the same. And it's that people tend to be very, very reluctant to think that things have reached the point where you must take decisive action. And they tend to keep crossing their fingers and hoping it's all going to turn out okay. And they usually do that until it's too late. The problem, of course, is that there are plenty of situations that look pretty bad and then don't get bad too. You know, so, so telling my, my fear is that we won't be able to tell the difference and that we are in the process of sliding towards something very, very bad. And that too many people will not take action because they will keep telling themselves that there is some fabled grown up in the room or that things will be better after the midterms or this or that. Uh, that's my fear. Well, I think that there's there's a lot of that going on. And, you know, Corey, you were one of the first ones out there signing these letters and so forth at a moment when it really could make a difference during a presidential campaign, when presumably having a bunch of senior Republican national security officials who had a point of view might have tipped the scales. Um, uh, as we know now, that 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 didn't happen. <laughs> um, yes. But but there are a lot of Republicans, you know, particularly the one who's sort of in my sort of sights this week, um, who are, you know, who who have been doing a lot of hand wringing over all this. Um, and they'll say, well, you know, this Trump, it really troubles me, you know, and, and, you know, Jeff Flake or Bob Corker. And recently it's Ben Sass who's been doing this. Oh, yeah, I'm I'm really I'm I'm really troubled. Um, by by all this, and it it strikes me that if the modern GOP is the equivalent of the know nothing party of the nineteenth century, then, ooh, nice news, David. Thank you. Then there is a. I, I, I was teeing that up for you, and you can explain how it derives <laughs> from the party. David, but, you, but, can you work in the mugwumps? <laughs> I, I, I may, I may in a second. We're we're going to offer a special deal on mugwumps. To good deep state mug. <laughs> the mugwumps, the mugwumps are the mythical creature that sits on the fence with its its head on one side, its mug on one side, and its wump on the other. Well, exactly. But these are similar <laughs> to that. But it, it whereas most of the party has has embraced the stance of the know nothings, these are the do nothings, and they just wring their hands. Oh my God! You know this could be bad, and and it you know whether it's on the Kavanaugh thing or whether it's on some other bigger issue, they're unwilling to to stop it, which brings us to the precipice of the kind of concerns all of you are talking about. Uh, yes, that's true. 
And Republican, all it would take is two Republicans in Congress to say, no, we must insist on the return to regular order. No, it's not okay to do business this way. Uh, we want uh, a political, we want legislation that at least 10 Democrats are willing to sign because that's way better for the country than proceeding on this sharp edge. And you're right, it's profoundly disappointing and may actually be the ruin of the Republican Party. Um, uh, which takes us to the mugwumps who were Thank roses, you, Corey. <laughs> roses, um, endearing description of a mugwump, which sounds sort of slothful, head on one side of the fence, uh, rear on the other. But but the no, mugwumps... No, no, no. They have nothing in common. Sloths take very firm moral positions. They just move rather slowly. I think we have no <laughs> proof of that. I, I think you are... Uh, in gifting them with your many fine qualities because it is your spirit animal. I'm not sure we have any actual proof of that. The mugwumps, however, we do have proof of because they were Republicans who left the party in order to support Grover Cleveland in the election oh. of 1884. That's right, all you deep state radio nerds at home who were holding your bingo par cards and wondering whether I was gonna get to Grover Cleveland, you may now check that box <laughs> off. But by the way, I think it's unfair if your bingo card had Grover Cleveland on it, because only one president ever served two non-successful. <laughs> Thank you, David, for that excellent intervention. Um, the last point I will say on our contemporary Republicans is that it's true that uh, that Bob Corker isn't doing nearly enough, that Jeff Flake isn't doing nearly enough, that John McCain didn't do nearly enough, that Ben Sass isn't doing nearly enough, and, and 50 other Republicans in the Senate, 50 Republicans, 51 Republicans in the Senate are failing to exercise the legislative controls at their fingertips in order to affect this. The only thing I would say is that tempting as it is to criticize Flake, uh, Corker, uh, and even Sass, uh, it feels to me a little bit like people who were blaming Colin Powell for the Iraq war, because there are a lot worse Republicans in Congress, ones who aren't even willing to condemn the president's statements and they deserve our first and foremost condemnation. And we need to work down to the people who just aren't doing enough. Okay, well, let me, I, that's a really good point. Not, and obviously make it, you can pick up on that if you want, but I wanna ask you a question that may seem like a non sequitur here, but it actually is the one that comes straight to my mind. Please explain to me the case of Lindsey Graham. So <laughs> uh. no, I think, that Lindsey Graham is the modern Thomas Cromwell. Wow. That Cor How do you feel about that? I mean, that's a real blast from the past. I feel like that gives Lindsey Graham a lot more credit than history will enrobe him with. 
Wow. Maybe true, but he he is someone who right has gone from powerful patron to powerful patron, being viewed by many as loyal. He has been on people's side while sort of maintaining this role as an advisor. Um, at the end of the day, though, Cromwell did not survive the last of his patrons. Right, he went from Wolsey to Henry VIII, and then you know did not make it past the Anne Boleyn or after the Anne Boleyn um, beheading, he eventually sort of lost his favor. Which um, reminds me that our deep state radio book club folks, if they haven't already read Hillary Mantel's Wolf Hall, absolutely should do so. And also bring up your dead, which was the second. The sequel. They're both, well, they're both spectacular, but Graham is, you know, he is very clearly making a loyalty transition from McCain, who he claimed was his sort of soulmate best friend, to Trump by inviting Trump's children to McCain's memorial service, to which Trump himself was not invited. Um, and he's always walked this line of giving the illusion of independence and being sort of a honest broker while still implementing the will of whoever his patron is. Well, that is a, it's a lovely way of suggesting that there is a method to all of his spinelessness. Um, and I, and I have to agree with Corey, it is, it kind of elevates his stature, um, uh, in the sense that there were, there were some moments of triumph there for Cromwell. And I might point out just picking up on Rosa's point, um, that if you don't read Wolf Hall, you should see the series done on Wolf Hall. Also Mark, fantastic. M Mark Rylance, who plays Cromwell, gives one of the really great performances. And I would argue, and, and again, we can have this argument if you want, with the retirement of Daniel Day-Lewis, I think Mark Rylance may be the best actor out there. He is certainly in the very top tier. What a great performance that was. He's the only reason why you should watch the Tom Hanks movie, Bridge of Spies. He is. Yeah, he was wonderful. Yeah. Uh, he is because the, he, he, he is the one who delivers the line, I believe, which is the signature of that, which I use on a regular basis, which is, would it help? You know, when, 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 <laughs> when, when, when Tom Hanks goes, you know, why aren't you going crazy? Why isn't this making you insane? And he goes, would it help? And it's, <laughs> it's fabulous. It's such a, uh, it's really, it's, it's really, really good. Um, but it does, you know, it does, Rosa, you know, sort of bring us back to this thing where the, 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 nobody's standing up to the president. The president is clearly unfit. And so far we've been lucky we haven't faced a major external crisis of the type that requires a president to be involved. And, you know, it's not to say we won't, you know, whether there's an Iran problem or things go off the rails in Idlib, which almost inevitably they will, and as, as, as the Russians and, and Assad seek to wind down and consolidate their victory there. Um, uh, or someplace else. Um, uh, for example, should the global economy start turning sour, which also seems like a likely thing. Yep, yep. Yeah, 
uh, no, I, I, I think we're in a, we're in a vulnerable and bad position. We have, we have squandered, uh, our already dwindling, uh, capital when it comes to our ability to be effective in, in diplomatic ventures, um, um, you know, we still obviously retain enormous destructive capacity, um, but we have squandered uh, most of the goodwill that we had. We had slowly begun to rebuild after Iraq. Um, uh, you know, for all, I mean, the Obama administration made many, many, many mistakes, um, but the the sort of fecklessness of the Trump administration is is. You know, it, no particular point in running through any of it because I think we've talked about it many times, and our listeners know it a little too well. But no, it, it's quite frightening. It, it's, I, it, it's also quite frightening. Not, I mean, and that the list you just ran through, David, uh, is a list of uh, threats and disruptions that would at least initially be be external. Um, I think the other thing to worry about, and there there is an example of this in in Bob Woodward's book, apparently, is the uh, you know internally created threat and disruption. One of the anecdotes that Woodward tells is that is that Trump was about to fire off at one point a tweet saying that the United States was going to withdraw dependence from uh, South Korea, uh, diplomatic you know dependence of uh, military diplomatic personnel who might be living in South Korea, um, and we knew very well that the North Koreans would interpret that as a sign of imminent military action uh, on the part of the U.S. and would react accordingly. In other words, um, making such an announcement could 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 have triggered uh, an immediate military confrontation. And and luckily, Trump was uh, somehow or other. It doesn't seem normally like there's any space between Trump thinking of tweeting something and Trump actually tweeting something. But in this particular case, apparently, others became aware that he was planning to tweet this out and managed to stop him. Um, but it's pretty frightening when you think about it. Uh, you know, you think about all the other ways in which at a moment when our own internal governance mechanisms uh, are in such disarray, uh, our president could, in addition to the potential external disruptions, sort of completely inadvertently uh, launch a brand new crisis of his own. Uh, it is pretty scary. Well, you know, Corey, I know that your impulse back when we were talking about mugwumps was to point out that the roots of the word were from the native Algonquin. <laughs> I resisted that temptation. I thought even our deep state radio nerds must have a threshold beyond which I should not trespass. But well, I'm so glad you did, David, because yes, of course, the Algonquin word, uh, it's got a Q in it, a whole bunch of Qs in it somewhere. It's just got one Q, it's mugumquamp. And mugumquamp <laughs> means war leader. And it does raise the question, David, you made that up. <laughs> Pardon me? <laughs> you no, just I, made that I up. do think it's actually true. Because no, no, the I reason don't... they get called mugwumps, the Republicans who bolt in 1884, it was derisive. It was, you guys think you're big shots, nobody cares what you think. Right, because mugwump came to mean big shot, but originally it meant war leader, and that brings us back to the point of, in such a crisis, do we still believe post-Woodward book in the and post New York Times op-ed, in the idea of the adults in the room, 
Are they behaving in an adult way? Are they covering their own butts? Would they, you know, be there to pull our fat out of the fire? Are they mugwumps or are they mugumquumps? Uh, I don't think you can generalize about the political appointees in the Trump administration. Uh, our, the friend of this program and podcaster of Bombshell, Lauren DeJong Schulman, has a terrific piece in the Washington Post uh, saying that it's wrong for all of us to expect civil servants in particular to be our saviors. And those people in the Trump administration uh, who are trying to conduct decent, reasonable policies, uh, I think also merit um, also merit admiration in very difficult circumstances. Uh, political appointees are are different because they presumably signed up for this in order to carry out the president's agenda. And one of the things that I find puzzling about so many people trying to make the anonymous New York's time, New York Times uh, op-ed writer into a genuine hero is that that person signed up for to be a Trump political appointee. It is evident in the editorial that they support quite a lot of Trump's policies and they want credit for their big, brave stand for the nation while also advancing President Trump's policies. And I don't think it works that way. Moreover, if that person really believes the president's as much a danger as they make it sound, I think they have recourse uh, and they should be talking to the Congress, talking to, the, talking to journalists, resigning their position. Um, rather than wanting credit for being a force of freedom by remaining a political appointee in the Trump administration. I actually think it's much more complicated than that because, you know, I understand that a lot of people think, well, you signed on to be a political appointee and therefore, you know, you signed up for this. But political appointees still swear their oath to the Constitution and to the nation. They don't swear it to the president and in any sort of personal loyalty way. And it's still tremendous honor to be selected as a personal uh, political appointee to serve the nation. And if all of those people were to leave who are there in service to the nation, who just, who personally find the president distasteful and also see up close things that some of us don't see that only come out later about how much worse the outrages could be, and they're swallowing that distaste in order to continue to serve because someone has to. And if not them, then perhaps someone who really is going to enable the worst of the president's worst instincts. Um, I understand why some of those people choose to stay, even if they wind up associated with some policies that they really don't like or don't agree with or might wish went the other way. I don't know how to feel about this person's making that angst public. Um, I do think it contributes to the president's sense of paranoia, and I'm not sure what it does for the rest of us. But I understand why people would choose to stay in this administration, even if they find what the president is doing really terrible. And, you know, I'm a registered Democrat and have worked for many Democratic politicians. I don't agree with anything that this president has done. Um, but I still understand why people would stay in service to the nation. Well, there's a there's an interesting um, op-ed that uh, 
you all might find interesting in the New York Review of Books by Gary Wills, um, uh, in a sense defending the anonymous op-ed writer, uh, not essentially saying, look, um, and, and I think they're two separate issues, right? I mean, I mean, I think we all find it kind of distasteful that this person wants to have it both ways. They they want to simultaneously stay and be secretly uh, secretly a resistor and yet also sort of get somehow, you know, patted on the back by the public for, for doing it. And you kind of, I think all of us feel a little bit like you don't get to have it both ways. But Gary Wills's point is that the criticism um, that these people are not democratically elected, they're not accountable, you know, whoever is you know, okay, Trump, at least he was elected more or less under our flawed system, um, you know, didn't get the popular vote victory, but did win the electoral vote, you know, leave aside Russian meddling, leave aside whatever, all the other things that, that at least he has some, some plausible claim to legitimately be in the office, whereas, you know, who elected the author of the op-ed, you know, who elected Gary Cohn and said it was okay to, you know, sneak things off Trump's desk, et cetera. Um, but Gary Wills's point is, is look, you know, you wanna, when, when you think about every past kind of civil disobedience, whether, and, and I'm, I'm looking at it now, so I'll quote it, whether unions that launch strikes, Rosa Parks sitting in a forbidden place, or those who break trespass laws for sit-ins, or Harriet Tubman smuggling blacks out of the South, or people hiding Jews from the Nazis, none of those people were elected. They're not publicly accountable. Uh, and yet, uh, you know, it's there clearly are situations where, you know, showing your your views by voting or resigning don't seem to be sufficient choices. They're clearly I think we could probably all imagine hypothetical s situations in which the the most moral and effective thing to do is is stay hidden and undermine an appalling government or regime from within. The question, as I as I said uh, in in our earlier conversation about what's your biggest fear, is you know how do we know? And I and I don't, I don't think that we ever know. You know, I listen to that, and and there's certainly a logic to it, but the logic implies that all other available options do not exist in the context of our democracy. That that it is not possible to do the right thing, to speak out to identify yourself and your dissent, to use the channels available via the Congress, via the media, uh, via the chain of command in whatever organization that you're in, in order to put up um, uh, uh, opposition to bad behavior. Now, some people might say, all systems have broken down. There is no congressional oversight. The White House is run by the president for the president. Um, and without any eye towards the rule of law, um, the entire system has been co-opted, in which case this crisis is much more profound than I thought. It seems to me that if somebody were to step forward, speak out, that they would have plenty of platforms to do it on, that in an election cycle they could have a major effect on the outcome, and that we're still a democracy. And that to go and to make the leap towards none of our systems are working anymore um, is, is pretty grievous. Um, and again, it arrogates a lot of power onto these people. And I would posit that some substantial number of the people 
who say, I am the resistance within, and I will stop the president, but I can't put my head up, are doing it to maintain power for themselves or because they do not have the courage to fight the battle that they should be fighting. That doesn't mean all of them, but it's, oh, it means some of them. So I, don't know. I, I mean, was with you. I was with you right up until the motive, which may be true, but I I would feel uncharitable um, in commenting on. I one thing you didn't say, David, that I would emphasize is that most average Americans don't make the fine distinctions that we nerds do between political appointees and and civil servants in the government. And part of what makes me so nervous about the, the anonymous New York Times editorial is that the president is surely going to play this as there's a deep state, they're working against me, um, and it reinforces that view on the part of people who aren't experts on this. And I do really think um, restoring the legitimacy and routine functioning of, of the government's a huge task. It will be a huge task after the Trump administration and anything we can do to prevent the further politicization of routine functions, I think would be advantageous. And David, I think there's another motive why people might feel like they can't put their heads up. And having, you know, lived through the Clinton impeachment on the Hill and his the lack of conviction in the Senate, right, to quote Omar Little from The Wire, you come at the king, you best not miss. Like, I think there are some people who feel like, okay, I could put my head up and I could go out and decry what's happened here, but so what? Like, how much difference did Ned Price's op-ed make? How much difference does it make that Ned Price is on TV all the time explaining what's very wrong with this administration? It actually, once you're on the outside, you have very little ability to affect decisions that are going on on the inside. So I don't think that it's just purely a selfish need to hold on to power, but an actual realization of what it of how little influence you have once you're on the outside and once you've actually said your piece. Well, I, I don't by any means suggest that that's the only motivation. I just was saying that some people may have that as a motivation. Other people may have a much more patriotic motivation. But even in those cases, Rosa, isn't it the case that this is a slippery slope and that if somebody does this now to Trump and we are as polarized a society as we are, and the federal government is as large as it is, and it contains so many pockets full of different views, um, uh, that it that that we might be opening the door to this happening again and again and again, where people sure, say, "Sure, you know, I'm just I'm you know I the, the the president is doing X and I can't support, yeah. so I'm so, gonna." I mean, yes, absolutely. Um, and but, right, at the end of the day on, on I think, all these matters of, you know, civil disobedience, um, uh, revolution, et cetera, there's a sort of history will judge piece of this, right, um, that I think it's, it is very hard to come up with, with hard and fast rules. Um, you know, the, the, 
the founding of the United States was illegal under prevailing laws at the time and was viewed by many as as immoral. You know, the, the, under existing norms about government and the nature of royal authority and what it meant to be a subject, um, you know, it was an illegal act. Uh, the Constitution of the United States was was adopted in an act of, uh, if you want to be charitable, you can call it extra legality, but you probably would be more accurate to call it illegality. The Constitutional Convention ignored their mandate, uh, came, did something they weren't supposed to do, and tried to get it adopted through a process that uh, was not previously sanctioned, etc. You know that that. <laughs> How do we evaluate these things, right? Well, we evaluate them in hindsight, uh, and I, I don't know that the I don't know that the world. I, I, I share your concern that once you say, "Oh, go ahead, everybody, just feel free whether you are elected or not to you know subvert secretly subvert the uh, will of the president, the elected president." I, I share your concern that, you know, you get all kinds of people for all kinds of bad reasons subverting things that you and I might not want to see subverted. Um, and it creates a, a democratic accountability problem. On the other hand, I think if you say never subvert, you know, well, there are situations in which you probably should subvert. Right. And we can all come up with we can all come up with examples uh, from from history as well as potential future hypothetical examples. It actually reminds me a little bit of a of a related conundrum, the, the problem of, of jury nullification, um, you know, that juries in, in uh, criminal trials um, are instructed by the judge that they must abide by the law. They don't get to just make up the law or ignore the law. But in fact, uh, our common law tradition also says that juries do get to ignore the law if they want to. It's called jury nullification. You know, juries can simply decide, you know, it is their prerogative to decide not to convict when the evidence makes it very clear that they should convict or to not to acquit when the evidence makes it clear that they should acquit. And there's been a, you know, a back and forth uh, in both the scholarship and in the courts about whether it's permissible to tell juries that they have the ability to nullify and do what they want. And nobody, the, the debate is not over whether they have the ability and the right to do that, or whether there may even be times when it's good that they can do that. Everybody agrees on that. The question is just whether it is acceptable to tell them. And, you know, one view is, you know, it seems fundamentally uh, violative of rule of law principles to say that there is something that they're legally permitted to do, uh, but you can't tell them. Um, at the same time, the the arguments on the other side are precisely the, the slippery slope fears that you just articulated, David, which is that if you don't tell them that they can do it, they will still do it, but they'll only do it when the stakes are seem to them to be extraordinarily high. Whereas if you tell them that they can do it, uh, they'll do it too often and they'll do it for more and more trivial reasons. Well, and that's, you know, in a nutshell, the value of respecting and adhering to norms. Uh, and that's the problem that we're getting into here. Uh, and it may be one of the long-term consequences that we're going to have to deal with of this administration, which is that so many norms were violated uh, and so many standards knocked for a loop that we are going to spend the rest of the next decade or two or however many um, trying to hit reset, trying to get back to some respect for 
the rule of law and the way the system's supposed to work. Um, I hope we hope we get back there, and I hope it doesn't take that long. Uh, this has been a really good discussion. I'm not surprised we couldn't have a better group than Corey and Mika and Rosa, and I thank you all very much for joining us. The end of this week, everybody, go to www. Uh, Deep State Radio Network. <laughs> One more W, David. Yeah, www. Thank you. Um, DeepStateRadioNetwork.com. And uh, you'll be able to get all of our podcasts. Uh, sometime soon, you'll be able to get all the transcripts of our podcasts. You'll be able to get some new content, including little shorter pieces, takes, sort of opinion pieces, as well as deep dives. You'll be able to sometime soon see some new podcasts. Uh, there'll be some new written content. There'll be a store. There'll be a bunch of stuff only available to members. There'll be a way to sign up to membership. And it's going to grow. So this is just the beginning. It's a seed. We're planting it, watering it. And the way it's going to grow is with the input and the guidance of the community of deep state nerds who we love. Right, Corey? We love the nerds. Uh Absolutely. There are no better nerds than deep state radio nerds. I love those guys and gals. And that's saying something because nerds generally are pretty good. Um, and uh, we are going to shape this and grow this so that we are the most responsive group of folks out there dealing with the needs, desires and issues of Deep State Radio nerds regarding national security and foreign policy and politics. So come join us, be part of the community, help shape it. We look forward to that. And uh, thanks to all of you for joining. And again, thank you, Corey. Thank you, Mika. And thank you, Rosa. Deep State Radio is a production of the Deep State Radio Network, a division of TRG Interactive Media. Our podcast today was produced in cooperation with Goat Rodeo Productions and was supervised by Ian Enright. Join us again for another episode of Deep State Radio. If you don't, we know where to find you. <laughs>